You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. I absolutely love October. If your birthday is in October, you are one cool cat in my book. Yeah. It's a time of great change. It's a deeply reflective time for me. I I don't know how I got so sensitive about the nature of time and its passages, but there there you have it. I'm I'm pretty sensitive to the passage of time. These days, I'm looking for some slower hours and some pretty busy days in this stunning season of color and coolness. Uh, I realize that uh, not just the beautiful leaves, but other things mark the passage of time this morning, too. The last time I spoke in chapel, I didn't need reading glasses. Now I do. There's got to be some kind of Shakespearean king-like, you know, King Lear-like imperative in that. See better straight. It might go something like that. But there's a lot competing for your time this morning, and I'm so grateful that you're here and that we're together. And I want to emphasize that again that we're here together. I'm always struck that on any given morning in chapel, before we start our formal worship time together, we're enclosed in some very, very, very old circumstances and folded, really, in a kind of sacred space and in a very profound moment before God. Before we say anything, we're here before God, whose love and grace are at work I want you to hear that, too, whose love and grace are at work in our mutual gathering. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them, as Jesus says in Matthew 18. And I'm going to return to Matthew's gospel later because of what it says about religious language and the costs of wisdom. Some months back, when I received this invitation to speak, I was asked to add a thought or two to our theme for the year. You are what you love. Within the context of our academic life as a Christian liberal arts university, and many of you will be happy to know that I am not going to sit here and rehearse the litanies of the glories of liberal arts learning this morning, even though if you want me to do that at some other occasion, just flip a switch and boom, I will go. But I want to linger a bit, not, not on the statement, you are what you love, but on the question that burns at the heart of it. What do I we really love. For me, this has been a season of trial. And by the gentle, even euphemized language of season, I want the accent to fall on trial. A trial of asking and answering the question, what do I really love? And the process of coming to terms again and the fidelity with which I use them to respond to that question. What words do I use? And to what extent am I committed to the fidelity of the words that I use to respond to that question? What do I really love? Let me not love thee if I love thee not, as George Herbert put it, who is one of my favorite, maybe if not my favorite poet, whose own prayer 389 years ago is partly responsible for insisting that I hold still before God to know what it means to love him and to love others. Much of what I say today will have to do with our 
readiness to hold still. To ask the question, what do I really love? with an openness and a vulnerability that only God himself can help us find, means suffering what Rowan Williams describes as wounded knowledge. And he defines it this way, the readiness of the Christian to be questioned, judged, stripped naked, and left speechless by that which lies at the center of his or her faith. The readiness of Christians to be questioned, judged, stripped naked, and left speechless by that which lies at the center of their faith. Does this sound like something we desire? Not especially, if we're honest. But if we're serious in our accounting of what we love and how we love it, if we're serious about our desire to follow Christ in and through every circumstance, even when those circumstances don't immediately change. It might be just the sort of trial that might awaken that desire. So my message this morning has to do with trial, not only with Jesus' trial as recorded in Matthew's Gospel and what the trial reveals about us, but also with what his trial reveals about the words we use and the knowledge we hold in response to who he is and to his call to follow him. As a faculty member in the English department, I am in the business of thinking about language, words, and the reality behind them. My nightmare as a Christian and as a teacher is that I become a practitioner of empty signs that don't signify. That was for my literary criticism class. I can't help myself. I had to let them go early, so. But I don't want to be a practitioner of empty signs that don't signify. But you don't have to teach English to be implicated in the problem of words. And in our responsibility to enact the kinship language has with knowledge and understanding, and ultimately with wisdom. And this is where it gets kind of tricky for us. For the Christian, wisdom is ultimately embodied in a person, Christ Jesus, and not in a proposition. But again, easy to say. We all use words then, lots and lots of them, and I use tons of them, just ask my students. And lots of religious ones. I've been here a long time and I've talked a lot about a lot of things and I can say a lot of religious things. I know a lot of religious words by now. The words we use are always a part of our claim our variety of claims that we make about God, and crucially, a part of the claims we make about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. I confess, though, that I fall into the trap, we all do, I suspect, of blithely invoking some of the most profound truths of the Christian faith, especially those having to do with who we say Jesus is, as though it were a routine matter, like talking about a favorite sports team or the newest Netflix special. Words, words, words. Shakespeare knew it all about that, right? Shakespeare's Hamlet says that in response to the meddling Polonius. You remember that play? Who asked the question about Hamlet's reading. The disingenuous question masks Polonius' secrets and his manipulations. Hamlet seems familiar to us, 
even if we haven't read the play, you know, with his brooding consciousness and his evasiveness. But we all have a bit of Polonius in us. It's sort of hard to say, isn't it? Polonius in us. But the name almost seems to reinforce my point. We have it in us to be blind to our own mixed motivations. Jeremiah 17 reminds us the heart is a deceitful, very deceitful, above all things, in fact, sometimes, and desperately wicked. It's a pretty sobering line, verse. And who can know it, Jeremiah asks. Well, we think we know it, and sometimes at our own peril. But we pray with the psalmist, and we really do pray with the psalmist when we read these words. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. So words matter in our honest pursuit of truth. Lionel Basney, one of my former professors and an infinitely more capable teacher than I, and who died tragically more than 20 years ago now, I found out about that in the fall of 1999 when I went to get my mail in my mailbox. He wondered whether his teaching really mattered. I suspect I'm not alone here, I see some of my colleagues in the back, and having the same worry more often than I would care to admit. Does my teaching really matter? Words, words, words. But Basney wrote in one of his poems, you cannot know what your words will weigh with students remembering them in a place you will never see. I like those two lines. You cannot know what your words will weigh with students remembering them in a place you will never see. This is a sober reminder of how we need to steward our language, how our words should serve the truth and enact the bonds of love. If they serve something other than the truth or if they operate as blunt instruments of hate and oppression, they serve only our own selfish ends, which are dead ends. So what exactly do I really love? This is the question we like to dodge or try to answer in our own way to the point of our own satisfaction or, more specifically, to the point of what we think is our own satisfaction, which leaves us restless and weary, desolate and alone, lost, if not in the heart of the wilderness, certainly along its edges. To ask this question then, prayerfully and honestly, means, among other things, facing up to the fact that instead of placing our security in Christ and in Christ alone, we often seek it along with versions of what we call happiness in all the wrong places. At this stage of my Christian life, I could talk for hours, it seems, about the delusion of thinking that I can find permanent happiness in things under the sun. That is, in fame and success and wealth and pleasure and other temporal hopes, as the writer of Ecclesiastes so powerfully points out to us. Yet I succumb, confession time, I succumb to this way of bankrupt thinking too often. I can intellectually understand that, and in the very next hour, I can, boom, have that kind of thought hit me. I occupy a profession obsessed with achievements, credentials, awards, degrees, publications, status, none of which, none of which are standalone sources of meaning. 
and certainly not standalone ultimate sources of meaning, even though they alluringly signal all of us in that direction. Apart from God's purposes, all such things simply ring hollow. Temporal things certainly don't guarantee permanent happiness. If the measure of our ultimate satisfaction lies with our accomplishments or with our notions of greatness and success, then we feel only as good as our last achievement. And that feeling doesn't last very long, especially when divorced from the true source of life and meaning, who is God. So again, we pray with the psalmist, protect me, O God. Protect me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I have no good apart from you. There may even be a lot of goods, but they're not going to be good for me if I have them apart from him. Ecclesiastes has something to say about our desires. Wow. It would only take you just a little bit of time to read Ecclesiastes today. It makes us occupy a space in which we might have to come to terms with them, along with our restlessness and our struggle and our agony and this probing, relentless search for fulfillment, happiness, joy, and contentment. It has this kind of, Ecclesiastes does this kind of pro productive, maddening, skeptical pressure, thrust, really, that exerts this tremendous pressure on the question, what do I really love? Ecclesiastes makes us imagine for a moment that our earthly life, apart from God, not only promises, but also fulfills our desire for happiness and meaning and purpose. From this perspective, from this, quote, logic, we carry on looking wrongly to those choices of life that we, will make, we think will make us finally happy, only to find that they won't and that we have been betrayed by the things we place so much value on. And we've all been there, making the wrong investments in the wrong places and then being disappointed because we invested in things that couldn't deliver in the first place. And somehow I still am surprised by that. And so long as we adopt a temporal view of life as the view of life, as Ecclesiastes shows, nothing in this life will satisfy us completely. At this point, we might make the mistake of thinking that nothing really has any meaning at all. You know, that life is one treadmill of unsatisfying experiences, one cycle of voided hope after another. The cruelest sort of Groundhog Day. Some days I feel like that. Some days feel like that. But Ecclesiastes, and I really should say and Ecclesiastes, really holds us there for a second, an uncomfortable second, with a kind of ironic pressure that forces us to ask, what if this, here and now, were all money, fame, prestige, adulation, affirmation, achievement, which alone will never satisfy our deepest sense of longing and identity. But what if that was all? That was it. How many Super Bowls can we win? How many Masters tournaments can we win? How many trophies are on our shelf? How many badges of honor do we need? The writer of Ecclesiastes is a believer in God, of course, even though it seems like he isn't or doesn't want to be. 
or that he's just plain grumpy about the whole business of human life in this world. But wow, does he put, and he makes a sort of face, to, you know, with a, with a kind of face-to-face -face energy, what we think from a very limited and temporal perspective is the true ground of our being. And from this temporal perspective, from a merely earthly perspective, from the perspective of all of our temporal hopes and desires and fears, the ground of our being seems like quicksand. And I have those days too. By its close, though, Ecclesiastes is reassuring in its own direct way, right? Quote, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of everyone. You can't really get much more direct than that. The good news of this wisdom book from the Old Testament is that we live in a God-ordained world. And it's, it's not that nothing matters. As Derek Kidner has pointed out, it's that everything matters. But to gain this perspective, to really gain this perspective and embrace this reality involves being exposed to and suffering a wounded knowledge, which means knowing God according to the way God wants us to know him. And here's the painful part, part of the painful part. That process begin, begins by surrendering the God of our own making. When we turn to the Gospels, this is Jesus' call to know him and to love him and to follow him according to his life as the perfect embodiment of the wisdom of God who holds the words of life in just such a way in just such a way as he wants to give them to us in self-giving love as God's gift of himself in the person of Christ. He wants to give them to us in self-giving love as God's gift of himself in the person of Christ. But I'm afraid and that's the problem, isn't it? Being afraid. We refuse what these words might give. What do I really love? Jesus asked this question of his disciples in different ways and does so repeatedly. Sometimes the disciples almost get it half right, which is another way of saying they frequently get it wrong, even sometimes colossally wrong. In John 6, 68, we read, Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. We know that the disciples, most memorably Peter himself, deserted Jesus in agonizing ways. The Christian poet priest Malcolm Geit captures this moment profoundly in one of his sonnets. I couldn't get, you know, I couldn't get through this morning without reading a poem to you. But Malcolm Geit wrote, has, has this beautiful sonnet that turns back on us the challenge of thinking all over again about what it means to hear and to know and to understand Jesus' words of life. And this is the poem. You have the words of life. Where should we go except to you to try to take them in? We want your words to quicken us, 
to know and be transformed by knowledge deep within. How is it then these words seem dead in us? We neither let them go nor let them live. Their empty echoes always seem to haunt us as daily we refuse what they might give. Oh, teacher, we need more than just hearing, more than these readings we have set apart. Somehow the two-edged sword we have been fearing must pierce at last the well-defended heart. Unsheathe it now and help us take the pain, pierce to the point where we can start again. Pierce to the point where we can start again. The last six lines of the disciples' prayer for Christ to pierce their well-defended hearts, even to the point of suffering, for God to meet them even in their darkness and bring them light and love and hope. This is our prayer, too, a prayer of exposure, a deep cry for God to invade our experience. The trouble is that we run and we hide. I know I do at times, and sometimes I can hide in the open from this sort of exposure. I mean, they even removed the, the big podium. I couldn't even hide behind that big block of, of wood over there. This is the moment, though, that we most want. In fact, sometimes we even kind of say that that's really what we most want, to really know him deeply, honestly, completely. It's the moment we most want, even the one we pray for. But it's the moment we're most afraid of sometimes. What do I really love? The disciples face an intensified variation of this question in Mark 8 at Caesarea at Philippi, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Kind of an easy question, really. And the disciples sort of seize on it sort of quickly, you know. The moment of exposure here is both easy and hard, easy because the disciples can hide themselves and their responses in what others say about who Jesus is. In the latest news and whatever's trending, you know, I can almost hear it. This is not my view, mind you. I, I, I can almost hear them say, not my view. But I, I've heard some say, Jesus, that you're John the Baptist, Elijah, or some other kind of prophet. In their remarks, I hear some pride for sure. And I actually kind of hear a little fear. I could be wrong about that, but I hear a little fear. They're placing their confidence in knowing stuff they don't really have to account for. It's easy to report on what you think other people think and say and do. Knowing stuff that we don't really have to account for. Until, ah, until Jesus asks a more searching question. But who do you say that I am? And that question, every time I read it, just carries more weight than I can bear sometimes. But who do you say that I am? And Peter again, you know, dear Peter, blurts out, you are the Messiah. If he had phrased it like an answer on Jeopardy, he might have been closer to the truth. It's like, you know, for $500, Alex, who is the Messiah? 
But Peter answers that question before he really knows what the real question is and what's actually at stake. What's really actually at stake? Jesus answers Peter and the others, but not in the way he or the others expect. Jesus describes shockingly the path of his self-giving sacrifice, that he will undergo great suffering, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, be killed, and after three days rise again. Peter objects on political grounds only because he understands Jesus in political terms. Perhaps this is the point at which all of this gets even more personal for me. I want to conclude by turning to Jesus' own trial in Matthew 26 and 27, mostly because Matthew returns us to the problem of words and wisdom, which is where I started. While all the accounts of Jesus' trial in the Gospels are crucial, because each affords a powerful picture of Christ's self-emptying on the cross, this one has hit me hard in a new way. As a Christian who desires to follow Christ, I certainly identify most immediately with the disciples' failures, with both their fumbling attempts and their words and their own flawed understandings about Jesus. But in kind of rereading through this in the last few weeks, I never really spent much time thinking about what I could, and this is a weird way to put this, but what I could actually learn from Caiaphas, <laughs> not a believer, at all. His authority was the Torah, period. I never really thought I could learn any from this high priest, Caiaphas, in Matthew 26, who had his own party affiliations with the Sadducees and rejected roundly Jesus' messianic claims according to the religious system that he occupied with the Sanhedrin. And rereading this part of Jesus' trial as Jesus stands before the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, all religious people, all religious people, I was struck by how blinded they were by their own religious commitments. All the noise and clamor of their positioning, the quick-handed appropriation of power, along with the severity of their exercise of it. In all their so-called knowledge and wisdom, they had decided in advance that Jesus was a fraud with the full weight of their institutional commitments behind them. The problem, the darkest tragedy really, is what they thought was wisdom, their own on their own authority, was wielded against Jesus, who is wisdom. The perfect fulfillment of it, in fact, who is, as we read in John's Gospel, the way and the truth and the life. My prayer, our prayer, I hope, is to stand not where Caiaphas stood, but where Peter and John stood in Acts 4, where in having to answer to the religious authorities said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who is sick and asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God has raised from the dead. This is the central hope of the Christian faith. But to know it, to really know it, might involve the wounding of what we think we know about Jesus. The good news is that Jesus meets us there too in the fellowship of his sufferings.